Welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast, everyone. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and here we are at part nine. This is the penultimate episode in my series on the Enneagram. We've already been on quite a journey. We've been getting into some of the dynamics of the Enneagram, what the Enneagram represents, how different Enneotypes communicate, as well as some basic descriptions of the different types. In the previous episode, I then looked at the issue of typing and mistyping. And so now, at long last, I'm going to explore the idea of wings, which I've already mentioned a few times. Those of you who aren't all that familiar with the Enneagram, apart from what I've been saying, are probably by now wondering what on earth I've been going on about when I speak about wings. Well, before we get into the details, allow me to offer a very simple starting point. In standard Enneagramma, the idea of wings simply refers to the two numbers that are adjacent to each Enneagram point. All Enneagram types or Enneotypes are sandwiched in between two other numbers. Well, these other numbers, those are the wings. With that in mind, what I'm going to cover here follows on, I hope, pretty well from the previous episode because sometimes people discover their Enneotype and then notice that there are these bits of themselves or that have been described that don't really seem to fit with what is typically regarded to be part of their Enneotype. Well, this is where wings come in. As I've tended to repeat, we are complex individuals and the Enneagram, because it is a dynamic system, tries to accommodate this. And one of the ways that this complexity is accommodated is through the observation that our personality pattern is related And sometimes certain aspects of our personalities are described by our wings. What should already be obvious also is is that each of us has a particular personality range. That is, we have a kind of flexibility or elasticity that is dependent on all kinds of things. How we're made, how we're brought up, who we've lived with, how our material conditions um, function in terms of how we, we relate to the world. In Enneagram speak, typically the range of each personality, especially when we're young, includes one of the Enneagram numbers and then extends usually to include some of the properties of the wing, as well as as some of the not-so-mature properties of our points of integration and disintegration. And then, as we get older, our range increases, uh, usually to include some of the dimensions of our other wing, as well as some of the better, more mature qualities of our points of integration and disintegration. As we grow into our truest selves, which is the point, uh, this range can expand further, this personality range, but this always happens through our primary lens or enneotype. Because we have this range, sometimes when we're younger, especially during adolescence, we may find ourselves so strongly aligned with one of our wings that we feel like that is really who we are. But What's really going on again, especially during adolescence, is that we're relying on that wing to to develop a sense sense of our own individuation. In fact, the energy of whatever that wing happens to be is there to try and help us to expand beyond the given limitations of our enneotype. This doesn't always play out as successfully as we may hope, though. Um, Our level of maturity is going to affect an awful lot. But here is where it gets really interesting. 
Shifting to incorporate our wing is, I believe, an indication of how our individual Enneotype number has failed to resolve the issue of how we might come into contact with reality. In fact, in standard Enneagram teaching, each personality type or Enneotype exists as an attempt to dialectically resolve tensions that arise in the interplay of each personality type's wings. But this resolution, this resolution that exists in the individual personality type is a false resolution. The pattern of our personality on its own is limited and ineffective for helping us to encounter the truth of life, the universe, and everything. So, as time wears on, we discover, each of us hopefully, that this resolving of tensions in our wings is a kind of false resolution. The reason is very simple. The resolution tries to get away from the negatives of each wing by resorting to another negative. And you'll see how this plays out in, in my explanations, uh, which I'll get to soon. Growth, then, is our ability to move from this obsession with negativity in our individual enneotype into a more positive mode of being, which is more inclusive um, and hopefully uh, transcends where we are. And of course, part of this is going to involve a movement back into the more positive dynamics of our wings. With this in mind, let's look at how this dialectical resolution works for each type, starting with type 9, because it's the crown of the Enneagram, so-called. By the way, uh, Sandra Maitri's book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, that's the title, that's something I'm drawing from pretty heavily here because I think her take on the wings is the most helpful for understanding the dynamics of the Enneagram. Okay, so here's how type 9s work with their wings. Type 9s are sandwiched between type 8 and type 1. And this means that 9s are caught between the so-called bad boy of the Enneagram and the so-called good boy of the Enneagram. Of course, yeah, these labels may not be that helpful, but I think they get to the right point. So the instinct at point 8 is counteracted by powerful superego prohibitions at point 1. And as you can imagine, the conflict here is immense. The result is that nines tend to become completely numb to this inner conflict and to their inner lives, and then they end up instead focusing on the external world. So there's a kind of fleeing into the external world from the world within themselves. In my view, it's because of the sense of the magnitude of the conflict that nines become peacemakers. They're better equipped than most of the other types at resolving conflict, since it's a conflict that they are already highly familiar with, albeit at a pretty unconscious level. Clearly, though, this resolving of conflict can be false in a way in the way that it plays out, which is why nines need to move back into their wings to try and find a truer and more honest way of dealing with the inner tensions that they're confronted with. Nines who have, have a stronger eight wing will tend to include a kind of belligerence or subtle aggressiveness that a nine with without a strong wing or a nine with a one wing will, will display. Their energy will be more geared towards the world and social harmony. A nine with a one wing will tend to be more inner directed and more philosophical and more stubborn than aggressive. This is probably too brief a description of how the wings play out in nines, of course. In fact, 
most of my descriptions here are going to be too brief. The key idea then is, is simply that all enneotypes with a dominant wing will incorporate some of the best and the worst of that wing. And what needs to happen then in growing is that the best uh, um, of the other wing will need to be developed as well. To have a little bit of fun, I'm going to actually name a few fictional characters of each type, starting here with nines. I've I've done this for uh, before with with people, with celebrities, I think, but I I thought it might be fun just to to think about. And you can maybe then start to think if if you know these characters well, you can start to think of of which wing they might lean towards. So. Uh, nines include Marvel's Colossus, uh, Star Wars's Anakin Skywalker. Uh, things go horribly wrong for Anakin later, as as you discover. Um, so there's probably a pretty pretty strong eight wing over there. And then Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, is also a nine. Then let's look at the type ones. Ones are caught between Sloth at point nine and Pride at point two. That is, on the one hand, there's this terrible sense of a loss of self-worth, and on the other hand, a horrible sense of self-inflation. And this gives one a kind of deep sense of imperfection, but in keeping with the outward focus of nines and twos, this imperfection tends to be projected outward. It is for ones, others, and the world that needs to be fixed first. Um, and I think that the fa failed boundary building of nines and twos um, is made up for in the one's very strong sense of where boundaries ought to be. And this is owed probably to the root sin of ones, which is, as you know by now, anger. Ones with a nine wing will tend to be idealistic, purposeful, unmovable, and slightly more judgmental. And then nines with a two wing will be more caring and more orientated towards justice. Um, ones with a two-wing will tend to also be a little bit more demanding of others. Ones in fiction include Agent Smith and Trinity from The Matrix. Agent Smith is obviously a very unhealthy one. Uh, Trinity is doing really well. Spock from Star Trek is pretty much a perfect one. Uh, Princess Padme from, from Star Wars, Hermione Granger and Severus Snape from the Harry Potter uh, movies. They're very strong one characters. And Jerry from Seinfeld is also a one. So that's ones. Now twos. Twos are caught between the ego resentment or anger of ones and the ego vanity of threes. This means that they have a strong sense of being flawed, which they get from ones, as well as this demand to project a perfect image to the world, which they get from the three-ishness um, of the Enneagram. In other words, twos find themselves caught between the high moral standards of ones and the deceit of threes, especially obviously immature threes. And this means that twos are always trying to be good, whilst horribly enough feeling guilty all the time. That's not a great feeling. It's it's a bit like saying, yay, I did something good, but woe is me, I still feel like I didn't do enough. From another angle, ones aim to be good and threes aim to impress. And so twos try to do good for others, but it's always in order to impress them. So that's where the dialectical resolution has gone wrong. A two with a one wing will tend to be warm, serving, and people-pleasing. And twos with three wings will be slightly more self-serving and status-seeking, albeit still with a friendly, adaptable, adaptable outward focus on others. From fiction, 
Uh, twos include Santa Claus. You always knew it, right? Like giving gifts and never really expecting anything in return, but actually kind of he wants those letters of thanks. Santa Claus is a classic too. Um, and clearly, uh, Dr. McCoy from Star Trek uh, has a little bit of that, that eight-ish aggressiveness, especially in the, the latest uh, Star Trek movies. Marvel's The Toad uh, and Sue Storm are also twos. Uh, DC's Supergirl. And then Elaine from Seinfeld is a two. Sirius Black from the Harry Potter movies is also two. And I'm going to be referring to the Harry Potter characters. I've already referred to Hermione. I'm just taking account the, the, into account the movie representations of the characters. So it's possible that the book um, characters or representations are slightly different. So that's twos, and now on to threes. Well, threes are caught between the ego melancholy and envy of fours and the ego flattery and pride of twos. In other words, they're caught between being totally other-focused and being totally self-absorbed. And since both twos and fours are often caught up in their emotional experience and are prone to depression, threes resolve this by cutting themselves off completely from emotion, or not completely, but a lot from emotion and and they do this by throwing themselves into action. They also then try to generate an image that escapes the depths that emotions allow us to access and in the process they end up feeling that they must become little all-rounders and gods which is why so many superhero characters are threes. Think Iron Man or Tony Stark, a very unhealthy three. Captain America, very healthy three. And Superman, a, an average to healthy three. All of these are threes. And He-Man, seriously, He-Man is a three, as is Marvel's very unhealthy three, Doctor Doom. Threes with a two-wing are referred to as the motivators. They're charming, encouraging, and ambitious, and they're able to get others to join with them. Threes with a four-wing are the achievers. They're highly ambitious, creative, and extremely image-conscious. That is, they're more image-conscious conscious than, than other types, including other three types. Captain America is a three with a two-wing. Superman is dead on three. And Tony Stark is a three with a four-wing. So you can even see how, how that plays out. Although that said, by the way, Tony Stark is a little inconsistent in his portrayal in the Marvel movies and also displays, thanks to, I think, his origins in the comics, uh, very seven-ish qualities as well. One of the things that you can figure out with the Enneagram is that fictional characters aren't always as much like human, real human beings as they should be. Often they morph depending on which writer is working with which story and which writer is and how each writer understands each character. Now for type 4s. By the way, I, I hope you're getting the hang of this Enneagram system by now. It's, it's endlessly full of insights. You can start really paying attention to all sorts of things, and you'll see how this plays out in, in amazing ways in the next e episode in terms of um, how we approach the critique of ideology and, and how we see the Enneagram in society. Okay, so 4s. Uh, Fours are caught between the vanity of threes and the detachment of fives. You can see the contradiction here already, and, and I'm pretty sure you're seeing that a lot of these wings are actually contradictory. Threes are overly attached to what people think of them, and fives feel like they're completely separate from the world. So fours carry both of these things in them very, very strongly. A deep sense of wanting to connect with others, 
as well as this horrible sense that they're cut off. And this is made worse by the fact that three-ishness feels empty and five-ishness, well, that feels a bit dry and boring. And fours try to compensate for this tension by embracing the full spectrum of emotional richness. So that that can result, by the way, in, in a kind of despair because emptiness and dryness aren't great things to be working with. Still, fours try to get in touch with the origin of all things and to be more deeply connected to an authentic inner source as a result of all of this. Fours with a three wing will be much more outgoing than fours with a five wing. So they, they get the extroversion from, from the three wing and the introversion from the five wing. Fours with a three wing will be more image conscious and bohemian. And fours with a five wing will be more unconventional, more self-conscious and more depressive, unfortunately. Fours with a five wing will tend to also be more thoughtful and intellectual for obvious reasons. Fictional fours include Buffy and Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Joss Whedon's uh, TV series, Captain Picard uh, from Star Trek, Han Solo from Star Wars, Lisa Simpson from The Simpsons, and Harry Potter from the Harry Potter movies. Some folks type Wolverine as a four, but I just really don't buy that, so um, I'm going to get to him later. So that's fours, and now on to fives. Fives are sandwiched between the ego melancholy of fours and the ego cowardice of sixes. And so they're kind of a blend between longing for a deep, authentic connection with being and a kind of fear and self-doubt, on the other hand, because the world is a total mess. So this combination between the fours' sense of being cut off and abandoned and the sixes' sense of being at the mercy of a very unpredictable and unstable world gives rise to the fives' tendency to hoard and cling to their resources. Also, fives try to resolve the push and pull of both fours and sixes' experience by finding stability in their thought life. Uh, because emotions are unreliable, but the world is also unreliable, so something must be reliable. And this is usually taken to be reason, although reason, by the way, is also super unreliable because it's also a kind of substitute self. I'm going to talk about more about substitute selves in the next episode. Fives with a four-wing are nicknamed iconoclasts because they, they combine the creative energy of fours with their need to explore ideas in huge depth. Fives with four wings will say things that to them seem perfectly reasonable, but other, which others will find horrendously offensive. And this obviously perplexes fives with four wings. Also, fives with four wings will tend to struggle less with accepting that emotions are part of life and important and we need to engage with them. Um, fives with six wings will tend to be more on the uh, unemotional or less emotional uh, spectrum of things. Fives with a six wing are problem solvers whose interests usually extend into matters that are scientific and technological, although, of course, there are exceptions. Fictional fives include Merlin uh, from mythology, Harry Potter's Dumbledore, Scully from the X-Files, Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, Morpheus from the Matrix movies, Marvel's Beast, and Bruce Banner is a, a very fearful uh, five, not a very healthy one. Probably a five with a six wing, as as you'll you'll probably figure out. Loki too uh, is a very uh, very unhealthy five, uh, and a very puny god. And then Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Giles is also one of the fives. 
Now for sixes. The six finds himself or herself in a very sticky, tricky midpoint between the five's withdrawal from the world and others and the seven's movement towards it and others. Fives like to hide and sevens like to get a taste of everything. So sixes have a bit of both of these qualities, hence their ambivalence. They trust the world, but they don't trust the world. They vacillate between having the sense of emptiness that that fives have, but they also manifest that seven-ish quality of wanting to be upbeat and part of things. So sixes with a five wing are the defenders and servants of the community who particularly manifest the intelligence of fives. And sixes with a seven wing are friends and lovers of the world who manifest the energy and outward focus of sevens. Peter Parker slash Spider-Man is the quintessential six superhero. He's frequently telling authority to go and get screwed, and then he turns around and does whatever he can to make sure that authority is happy uh, and, you know, the big other is okay. Optimus Prime from the Transformers movies is also a six, as is Willow from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series and Marvel's Cyclops also a six. Frodo from The Lord of the Rings is a six, not a very healthy one, as you uh, know, and so is Ron Weasley from the Harry Potter movies. So that's sixes, which brings me naturally to sevens. Sevens try to resolve the lust of eightishness and the fear of sixishness. And the result is that they want to get a taste for everything in life, but are fearful of really immersing themselves completely in anything. This results in the fact that they jump around from idea to idea and thing to thing and place to place. At their worst, they are natural-born quitters, although this tends to be worse uh, in sevens with a six-wing. Eights are very sense-orientated and sixes doubt their experience. So sevens sample a lot of things but tend to question everything. The eights need for dominance and the sixes need to comply results in sevens making many plans without really accomplishing very much of what they set out to do. Sevens with a six wing are more sociable, more subtle and friendly and funnier generally than sevens with an eight wing. Uh, With an eight wing, sevens will be more aggressive in their pursuits. I've also noticed that sevens with a six wing will tend to be more uh, seeking after what the big other wants, but never fully kind of immersing themselves in that. Sevens in fiction include Seinfeld's Kramer, Homer Simpson, not a very healthy uh, seven, Fox Mulder from the X-Files series, Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles, Star Trek's Captain Kirk, incredibly, incredibly seven-ish, and Marvel's Deadpool, uh, who is an unhealthy seven with an eight wing, probably. Now, at last, um, we get to eights. Eights are a combination of the utopian planning of sevens and the inertia of nines. And the result is that eights manifest this tendency to simply see what they expect to see. Eights, at least in immature to average states, have a very entrenched vision of the world. And I would say often a very simplistic view of the world, (laughs) which... Uh, which is very scary because this is Donald Trump, right? Like a very immature eight in charge of a very powerful three country. Scary, scary stuff. Sevens and nines are both focused on the outside world and avoiding of the self. 
And this is true of eights too. The way that this plays out is that eights take the nine sense of injustice and the seven sense of planning, and they combine that into a vision of how things ought to be. But, well, unfortunately, this happens to be in a way that is very out of touch with the self. Eights with a seven wing are power-seeking, revolutionizing, and at their worst, violent. When you think of the bad boys of the Enneagram, it's really these eights that you're thinking of. Eights with a nine wing are the bosses of the Enneagram, challenging, delegating, and at their worst, bullying. So bear in mind, like, I mean, I've focused on the wings in terms of all the negatives, so no one is looking great at this point, I understand that, but sometimes part of the point of, of trying to get better is, is learning um, what our worst looks like. At their healthiest, um, though, eights with seven wings use their seven-ish energy for positive change, and healthy eights with a nine wing have a peaceful, definite solidity about them, and they can mediate pretty well. Not as well as nines, obviously, but pretty well. Fictional eights include the, the the first part of this list is not particularly complimentary, unfortunately. Um, the Incredible Hulk is an eight. Godzilla, King Kong, Megatron. Um, Megatron, obviously, from the Transformers movies. Marvel's Magneto is an eight. And Wolverine. Yes, gosh, Wolverine is an eight. Especially Wolverine in the latest uh, Wolverine movie, Logan. If you've seen that, which, I mean, I'm sorry... <laughs> That it's just so it's such an eightish uh, movie and such an eightish character. Seven Wing too. Um, that that's what Wolverine has. Just because Wolverine is alienated and identity confused does not mean that he is a four. Other eights include healthier eights, thankfully. Luke Skywalker and Yoda. Yoda is a super healthy eight. And Princess Leia in Star Wars. Um, she's a really amazing, healthy eight in, in The Force Awakens. Um, so there you go. That's, that's eights. Hopefully you will be able to do some digging and exploring of your own. But this, what I've said here in this episode, should give you a pretty good sense of where to go. Before I finish off and remind you of what we'll be looking at in the next episode after this one, I thought to offer a very brief side note on how the Enneagram functions with other typology systems. Um, a number of writers have noted connections, of course, and I think these connections are potentially helpful, but they may also not help, and, and so that's why I want to talk about them. I have just one core idea to mention. Each typology system has its particular aims and intentions, and those aims and intentions do not necessarily equate to each other. Um, George Box's famous statement, I think, is very helpful to, to remember, which is, is that idea that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. So the question that we need to be asking is, what is the use of any given typology system? Riso and, and Hudson uh, provide a brief idea of how the Enneagram equates to different personalities in, or compares with uh, different personalities in the Jungian or MBTI system in their book Personality Types. And I have to say that, in my view, this, this seems to be wrong. The reason is, is simple enough. The Jungian system is trying to do something else which the Enneagram is not trying to do. The Jungian approach looks at cognitive functions and the Enneagram looks at motivations. So for example, two people that I know extremely well are both type 1s, but one of them is an ENFJ and the other is an ISTJ. 
totally different cognitive functions, but very similar motivations. I know INTP type 5s and ENTJ 5s, and I'm an INFJ. So my take is simply this, don't mix the MBTI with the Enneagram. In theory, I think it's possible for every type of Myers-Briggs combination to be any of the numbers on the Enneagram. Now, at long last, we're at the end of what I'm going to cover on the Enneagram in terms of personality. In the last episode, uh, which I think is going to be the crowning achievement of this series, I hope, I I really want to look at the Enneagram and the critique of ideology. You will be amazed at how helpful the Enneagram is for looking not just at, at individuals, but at society and its institutions. We are all part of a kind of social tapestry and the way that this tapestry requires us to be woven into it can have huge significance for how connected or disconnected from reality we might end up being. So I really hope that you are going to join me for that. I I think it's going to be illuminating for you just grappling with the Enneagram and and what it provides in terms of a way to see the world has really helped me to to pick out things that I otherwise would have missed. Um, And so I want to share some of those insights with you. It's not completely comprehensive because it can't be in this format, but I, I, I think it's going to be helpful anyway. So there you go. Thank you very much for listening to this Unorthodoxy podcast. Cheers, everyone.